You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, we are asking tonight that you would speak to us in a voice that we cannot help but hear. We've come to this campground today some of us for the next few days or maybe even a little longer because we want to intersect with your grace and meet in a very real way your son Jesus. We are confident that you are God. We are certain that your desire is to bless. And so tonight, We are reminded that it says in the Bible, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Here we are asking you to fill us. Fill us with your spirit. Feed us with the bread of heaven, we pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Please say with me, amen. I think you've noticed, and it has already been said, as a matter of fact, our education superintendent, spoke to this just moments ago. And by the way, thank God for Adventist education. Can you say amen? Amen. No, really, really, thank God. Thank God. If you have not noticed, society is in upheaval. Now, I I know that preachers are guilty of of, of some things. I mean, nothing like a good tragedy or a good disaster to encourage an evangelistic preacher in his or her preaching. Because these are great sermon illustrations and they just help people to see that what we're saying is right and incontrovertible. But I'm not doing that. This is just the truth. We had the question asked a few moments ago, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Five years ago, would you have seen the world being in this condition? And I mean, eventually it had to come to this, but you might have said no a few years ago. I think that was our response a few moments ago. But here we are. I would like to suggest that we ain't seen nothing yet, but here we are, and we probably don't really fully appreciate just what we are seeing. We probably don't really get it. The economy is tanking. Now, for reasons that no economist can hope to explain, the stock market remains in nosebleed territory. I know it's been doing a little bit of this lately, but it's still artificially and unreasonably high, and no one can quite explain it. Probably, in my thinking, because there's so much money sloshing around in the economy you got to put it somewhere. That money gets dumped into the stock market and there's a supply and a demand question. You understand that. When at the same time, when at the same time, politicians know that we will never be able to repay our national debt. This is not going to happen. And everybody blunders on into the future without realizing that one day we're going to have to face that. So economically, we are in a perilous sort of a situation. Social standards are down the drain. 
It's a fascinating thing that uh, the Olympic Games were they last year, the 2020 Olympic Games were held in the year 2021. And I don't want to pick on this, and I don't want to make light of what in some instances is quite a complex situation. If you're not affected by it, it's black and white. Once you get affected by it, it's slightly less black and slightly less white. But a, a weightlifter from my home country of New Zealand who was born a male competed in Tokyo as a female. Now, it would seem, and I'm not wanting to criticize. If I wanted to, I would, but that's not the point right now. It would seem that any thinking person would say, there's an imbalance here. Not even talking about the rights and wrongs of that. Let's leave that for another time. But anybody would say, that just doesn't seem right to have somebody who was born a man competing in a strength event against individuals who were born female. A, a swimmer at a well-known university was breaking all kinds of records. Runners in Connecticut breaking all kinds of records. These are those born male competing as female. Now, I don't think anybody saw that. I mean, for the longest time, we're used to transgender people. No one wants to throw, to hurl epithets at them. One of the first jobs I ever had was overnight on a radio station. I'd stop at a Greasy Spoon Cafe on my way home from work some mornings, and there'd be a gaggle of, of transgender folks sitting at a table over there. People left them alone. They were doing their thing. This is ancient history now. But I don't think we ever got to, we, we ever imagined we'd get to the place where we would say, of course they should compete against each other, and if you raise a question, then you're a bigot. Now again, what I'm about to say is not a political statement. You might take it as such. I beg you not to. But ladies and gentlemen, recently during the confirmation of someone hoping to become a justice on the Supreme Court, the individual was asked to define what a woman is and declined to do so. Unable to say a woman is this. Now my point is not that people believe these things and think that way. Let them. Can't change it. No need to be a hater. But how can people in responsible positions say such mind-numbing things? We can't tell anymore how you define what a, 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 a woman is. This is just a funny old place in which we find ourselves. Fifty years after Dr. King had a dream, we are being pulled apart on racial lines rather than being pressed together. And you might say there are injustices that need to be taken care of. You might say that the past still casts a pall over this entire nation. I think you'd probably be right. But I don't think that's a reason to make enemies of people who over the last several decades have made some considerable strides towards acting like friends. It just seems like there are forces pushing us apart rather than drawing us together. We just got hammered by a virus. 
the way people acted during that time was a revelation. I'll let you to reflect on how you acted or how your local congregation acted. I don't know if you were watching the news, but the government of this country made plans, began to enact what was called a ministry of truth. Now, I would understand if you listen to me from a political persuasion, you're going to say, oh, he's damning Democrats and he's... All. No, that's, that's, that's not my point. My point is this isn't the Soviet Union. And yet, and yet we were a whisker away from having a governmental organization take responsibility for deciding what may be uttered and what may not. Ladies and gentlemen, what in the world happened to freedom of expression? Years ago, somebody with great wisdom and insight said that there would come a time when this nation would repudiate every principle of the Constitution. My expectation is that if I'd been alive when those words were written, I would, accuse, I would have accused the author of being out of her mind. You couldn't imagine that back then, could you? Could you imagine that? In the 1800s, late 1800s, could you imagine that there would come a time? And now, if people hadn't spoken against it, we would have a government agency censoring what may be said and what may not. It sounds like East Germany. The next thing after that would surely be the establishment of gulags, which I know was not East Germany. I'm not that confused. Thank God we were able to back up from that. But you know that if we pressed there once, we will press there again. You've heard of the slippery slope. Friend, we're not just on it, we are careening down it. If you open your eyes and you look around, you will realize that there have been some great changes in recent times, recent times. And what we know is, as I think I said this morning, God is calling to us not to be activistic, but to be Christian. Not to be an agitator, but to be a reflector of the character of Jesus. Not to be that angry person who wants to, to carry a banner to every rally, yell at those with whom you disagree. That's not what God is asking us to be. God is asking us to be a light in an ever-darkening world. This is our opportunity not to find solutions for all the problems, but to lift up the one who is the solution for every problem. Let me say this, Christian friend. You might be offended by some of what you see. You might be angered by some of what you see. You might be, uh, you might be discombobulated by some of what you see. Again, it's gonna get a whole lot worse before it gets a whole lot better, it would be good now for us to decide that we're not gonna fight back, that we will understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 
and that we have been called to have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may not be of us but would be of God. Come on, friend. God placed you on this earth in this darkening moment so that the light of the gospel might be seen in you, so that calm and grace and blessing might be manifest in you. This is your time. God put you here now. If he wanted you to avoid all of this, you'd have been born 100, 200, 300 years ago. Instead, your birth was not an accident of the calendar. You are here because God is looking to you to show people in the midst of the madness that the gospel is able to be a blessing. It's able to keep you serene. It's able to keep you calm. It's able to enable you to be different, shining to the world what Jesus is all about. That's why we're here now, because as everything looks like it's going to hell, you can show the world what it looks like when you are going to heaven. This is our time. In the book of Amos, the God of heaven shows us how important it is to understand the time and to live like we are knowing the time. The book of Amos opens with God pronouncing judgments on the nations surrounding Israel, Syria and Egypt and Edom and Moab, and then Israel, judgments on Israel. Well, why would that be? God speaks unequivocally about the extent of his own people's wanton iniquity. He says, I have brought judgments upon you. He says food was scarce. And then he says, yet you have not returned to me. I have kept the rain from falling, yet you have not returned to me. I sent pestilence among you. Listen, God said, I overthrew some of you as Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God says, yet you did not return to me. Notice what God is saying. Judgments came, trouble came, and the point was God was endeavoring to get his people to turn back towards him. I want to encourage you. Yes, we must understand that we're living in crazy times, getting crazier. But in the midst of this, God is trying to communicate to us that the solution for us individually and societally is to turn back to him, to embrace Christ, to fall down at the cross. L ladies and gentlemen, this is a time to return to the God of our fathers, to what we learned in Sabbath school or Sunday school as kids, to come to Jesus in faith, God is seeking to arouse our blunted, dulled sensibilities. Trouble came. Judgment came. God said, I was trying to get you to return to me. People misread God. They look at God as though he were a tyrant. When the fact is, his judgments come that we might turn to him with all of our hearts. Trouble in the world. God is calling his people to turn to him, his wandering people. God is calling people back to the one source of help and health and strength. Listen, is there trouble in your life? Why is it there? Well, maybe a multiplicity of factors, but in the midst of it, 
God is calling you to him. It might not be that you've wandered far. It might be that you have, but whatever it is, God is still calling. Trouble comes in people's lives. Spoke to a friend the other day on the phone. He mentioned a fellow in some areas of the church. He has some modicum of prominence. He said, the man has lost his way. I said, why would that be? His wife died, died of some terrible illness. She died in her 60s, way too young. And it, and, it, and it shook up the husband so much, he was angry with God, which God can handle, by the way. But then he decided that he didn't want to have anything to do with God, and he turned his back on God and walked away. Hold on a minute. Let me explain. Let me explain. When that spouse died, that wasn't God saying, I'm trying to get you. It was God saying, I'm trying to draw you to me. No, no, no. It's not that God caused her to die to draw the man. But when she died, God was waiting with open arms, saying, you need comfort, brother. Come to me. Instead, he turned around and ran in the other direction. You cannot make that mistake. Someone's going to be involved in a car wreck. Somebody's house is going to burn down. Somebody's investment in crypto is going to crash. You're going to lose it all. What then? Don't run from God. Run to God. Somebody's kid is going to walk away from church. Somebody's wife or husband is going to walk away from the house. What are you going to do then? Don't run from God. Run to God. Somebody's employer is going to hand them a pink slip. Somebody's business is going to go belly up. Somebody's going to lose their job over a vaccination. Don't run from God. Run to God. In the midst of all of it, God is saying, I am there. If you will come to me, come on and say amen tonight. Amen. Amos chapter 5, Amos writes, God says, Amos writes, Seek the Lord and you shall live. He goes on to say, Seek the Creator. Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night. Seek him, God says. And then in Amos 5 and verse 12, I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. God says, seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate the evil, love the good. But the prophet knew that the people were not favorably disposed to respond to God in kind. And then he writes, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Hold on. Aren't we to desire the day of the Lord? Didn't Paul write to Titus about the, the blessed hope? So consider what God is saying to these people. This was not written initially to Christians in the late hours of earth's history looking to the second coming. This was written to God's people way back then in Hosea's day. Nevertheless, listen to what God said. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? For the day of the Lord is darkness not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into his house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it. God says, I hate, I despise your feast days. 
And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies, though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings. I won't accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. And then God spoke and he said, but let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. We'll come back to that. But this is a fascinating passage, a jarring passage. God says you are looking forward to the day of the Lord, but woe unto you. What, Lord? What do you mean? We're supposed to look forward to the day of the Lord. But here God says, oh, no, you desire the day of the Lord. It won't be dark. Sorry, it won't be light. It will be darkness. Now we can see a parallel, friend. Today we talk of the return of Jesus as we should. But what we know is that some will say to Jesus in the last times, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? And in your name have cast out devils. And in your name done many wonderful works. They sound like the people that you would want to have on your church board. But Jesus speaks to them and he says, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now you've got to ask yourself if God is bipolar here or if we can find a thread of sensibility. Here are people doing the right things. At least that's their claim and that's their belief. And God speaks to them in earth's last days. This is at the very end. Jesus says, you can depart. You are workers of iniquity. Jesus says, I never knew you. Friend of God, we believe that we are living in the shadow of the second coming. Come on and say amen. And no question about that. The second coming of Jesus is going to be the greatest event in the history of the world since the creation of the world. At that time, the dead in Christ will rise. The lost will be obliterated. The kingdoms of this sinful world will be swept away. There will never be another case of COVID or the flu or diabetes or heart disease. On that day when Jesus comes back, there will never be any more injustice, no more crime, no more death, no more sorrow or crying. The former things will be passed away when Jesus returns. Amen. But as God said through Amos, many people desire the day of the Lord, but for them it won't be light and it will be darkness. It's going to be like that fellow who ran from a lion only to meet a bear, like someone going to the safety of his home, leaning his hand against a wall and being bitten by a venomous serpent. These are people who are expecting something wonderful, but instead receive a rude awakening. This is where the return of Jesus is bad news. Of course, it's good news for the saved. It's good news for everybody who lives in hope. It's good news for everybody whose heart is genuinely yielded to the controlling influence, the subduing influence of the Spirit of Almighty God. But this is bad news for the lost, especially bad news for the deluded. 
the self-deceived. And I will tell you this, for a worldly person to be lost, a secular person, someone who has never made a profession of faith in Jesus, for that person to be lost, nobody is surprised. But Jesus has told us again and again that on that day there will be those lost who went to church, who came to camp meeting, who worked in the service of the Lord, maybe in a church or perhaps in a ministry. What about that person who was just going through the motions? They were just mailing it in in terms of their Christian experience. What about that person? That person who has fooled himself or herself into thinking that good enough is good enough. One of the crises facing the church today is apathy. Now we talked this morning about the ten virgins, all ten of them were asleep. You know what was interesting, and you know this to be true, that when COVID came and churches closed, this, is, this was contrary to what anybody believed would happen, tithe actually did what? I've asked numerous people, tell me why. Most haven't been able to tell me. I've asked treasurers of local churches, haven't been able to tell me. I've asked treasurers of conferences, you've got to do a deep dive. Somebody has to figure this out. Where'd the money come from? The general consensus is that it was fire insurance. That's the general consensus. No one has proven that. It should be pretty easy to find out. If you're a church treasurer, you just find out whether the same 100 people gave more or whether the 100 turned into 125 and who those 25 were. Can't be hard to figure out. But what that means is that when a crisis came, and COVID was just that, People did a double take, and many of them realized we got to be more faithful in our giving, telling us that if what we're postulating is accurate, before that time they were not faithful. Now, thank God that when the impetus came for faithfulness, they rose to the moment. But doesn't it make you wonder what in the world they were thinking before that time? What were they thinking? It's okay not to tithe. What in the world were they thinking? It's like when 9-11 took place. You were there in church. The Sabbath following 9-11, the church was full. Didn't matter if you're an Adventist, a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, Episcopalian, the churches were full. The following week, they were still healthily attended, but the attendance was down a little bit, and the following week, back to normal. Telling us that normal is apathy. When a crisis comes, people know what to do. They hustle themselves to church. They reattach themselves with their local congregation. They, they remember the, the faith of their childhood. They know what to do. They look upwards and they reach upwards. But when there isn't a crisis, when the crisis passes, we have this happy knack of just going back to sleep. Listen, I'll say this. I was in a conference camp meeting and they were talking about their endowment, raising a $10 million endowment to keep the academy afloat. I understand that, nothing wrong with that, God bless them. You may, you, you may question it, I don't care if you do or not, that's not my point. My statement was when I got up to preach, why in the world do we need an endowment for the academy? The point being, why aren't we just supporting this thing like we ought to? 
There's an evangelism offering here at camp meeting, and there ought to be. I'm not against that. But you would understand that if we were actually on fire with love for God, there wouldn't be a need for an evangelism offering. In fact, the conference leadership and local church leaders would be trying to figure out how in the world do we spend all this evangelism money. It just keeps coming in. When they wanted to build the temple, God's people gave and they gave and they gave and they gave and they gave. Let's come back to that in just a moment. They got to the point where they had to say, stop bringing the gifts for the temple. We have more than we need. You didn't want to be that person who was like, oh, but I didn't give yet. Because they would have said, you just don't need the money. Or, uh, you, we just don't need the money. Now, here's what was fascinating about this. They just evacuated from Egypt. Am I right? And they brought with them the wealth of the Egyptians. And when it came time for the offering to build the temple, they gave what they had plundered from the Egyptians. The point being, they didn't even give their own. It was what God had given them. No difference for us today. It's not our own. It's what God has given us. Now, this is going to be the mother of all digressions, but it's bubbling up within me, and I just can't help it. What we have is not our own, yes or no? Are we sure about that? Whose is it? So tell me why it is that your will is written in such a way that when you die, your money is going to your kids. Help me understand that. It's God's money, and you're going to take it and leave it to your family. Now I understand you want to leave something. You don't want them thinking that their, your, their parents don't love them. Let me do this with you. Let's say you have two kids and you die at 85. 80, 85 at Venice. We'll give you those extra five years. <laughs> if you have two kids and you die at 85, how old are the kids? 60, right? Can we say 60 and 62? Is that okay? All right, okay. Now, what you're going to say is, no, I'm going to leave money to the grandchildren. No, 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 no. Your kids are 60 and 62. Your grandkids by now are in their 30s. They're out of college. They don't need it either. So you have a house. Just throw out a number. What might the house be worth? Throw just a number. How much? Did you say two? Nah. How much? Three? All right. Let's say three. It could be seven, but let's just say $300,000. So you've got two kids. They're 60 and 62. And you got a house, and you say half goes to Jack and half goes to Jill. Your 62-year-old son needs $150,000 like he needs a hole in the head. And let me say this. If you have a 62-year-old son who actually needs $150,000, you have a problem of another kind altogether. No, I understand. Your son went and worked in the mission field and he came back flat busted broke. Then you'll help him somehow. God bless him. My thinking is that God probably sustained him. He's probably okay. I have told my kids, we gave you an education. What God gave us, it's his. So when we die, we'll give it to him. Now we'll throw the kids a bone. You know we will. Of course you do. I'll tell you what you do for your 62-year-old son and his 60-year-old sister. What you do is you talk to somebody at the conference and say, help me give this to God, because that's what I want to do. Now, I want to leave the ride-on mower to my son. 
and the daughter, I don't know what she, maybe there's some antiques, or maybe she should get the ride on Moa. I don't know, but that's what we're going to do. And I'll leave them both about $8,000 so that they can take their spouse on a holiday to Greece or someplace. And with the rest, we are going to win some souls. That's what we're going to do. There are people around the world who don't know Jesus, and there are conferences who are trying to figure out how to make payroll. And we say, oh, it's because there's no money. No, 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 there's money, but we're leaving it to the Cancer Society. Explain that. People know what to do to avoid cancer for the most part. The experts say that if, we, that if we simply lived and ate and exercised and rested right, this is what the experts say, the vast majority of cancers would disappear. 70, sometimes as many as 90 or 95% of cancers, gone. And they want to ask you for money to spend on research? I mean, I get it. I'm not being insensitive here. But how about you win a soul and let Bill Gates solve cancer? You might like kitty cats, so you're going to give your money to Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Do what you got to do. But friend of God, what you got to do is be faithful to the Lord. That's what you got to do. And so if we were that in about five years from now, the, the, the folks here at the conference would feel kind of guilty taking an evangelism offering because they got all kinds of money that they can't spend. That's how it ought to be. But friends, we're apathetic. We say to ourselves, oh, I don't know, I tithe them. It's time, it's time to give my money to Jack and Jill. They got enough. They live in great big houses. We don't just buy them a Maserati and some crypto anyway. What in the world? I remember being a local church pastor. Something broke at the church. It was something underground, big church. I didn't know what it was, but I was told, Pastor, $36,000. Oh, where's that coming from? Didn't know. I was looking forward to the next finance committee meeting. We went to the finance committee meeting, and the chairman of the finance committee said, Hey, I've got to tell you, Pastor, Ethel, she died before you got here. We just got a check from her estate, $35,000. Covered it. Oh, praise the Lord. I spoke from the pulpit, and I said, You know what? Some of y'all are leaving your money to all kind of charities, but you're forgetting the church. Ethel didn't forget the church. That's how come we're not in a hole. About a month later, people from a couple of different families came to me and spoke to me and said, thank you for that. We changed our will. We are remembering the church now. Come on, friend. I'm not here raising money. I'm here trying to encourage you to be faithful to God. And thank God, God's people by and large are tremendously faithful, tremendously faithful. But I can't overdo that because not even half of us tithe. Friend of God, apathy. If we believed like we claim that we believe, we'd write our wills in a way that say we believe. We keep those trust people down at the conference office, bewildered with the amount of work coming their way. The accounts would be getting big. We could do more evangelism. We could win more souls. We could do more creative ministry, things we'd never done before. We could target people groups we never had the opportunity to target before. Church districts could get smaller. If that's a good thing, maybe it's not. But you understand, the work of God wants while we do not. That, my friend, is back to front. Would you think about that? Would you think about what God can do through you to bless the church, to bless the work of God, to bless the work of evangelism? Being raised in a church-going family does not make you a saved believer. 
You want to have an experience for yourself that is real. There are people looking forward to the day of the Lord, and it's going to be a terrible surprise for them. I spoke recently. We had a young lady that we interviewed for an It Is Written Conversations program. Great story. I won't tell you her name, but, but she'll tell you her name when, we, when the program airs. When she was a kid, she was the good kid. When she went to Southern Adventist University, uh, everybody looked up to her. She was the one that people would go to with their problems and ask questions and ask about the Bible and get counsel from. She was a real leader. And then she said she left school and, and went through a rough experience and the bottom fell out of her walk with God. She ended up in a dark place. She began to doubt God. She began, she wasn't suicidal, but she began wishing she could die and wondering if there was anything she could do to hasten the process. What a dark place for a young Christian woman to be. Her world had been shaken. She realized she had never had a genuine experience with Jesus. She knew the rules and she obeyed them. She knew the right answers and she regurgitated them. She knew how to say happy Sabbath and God bless you and so she did. But she had taken for granted the need of having a genuine personal relationship with God. We are good at rules in the church and I'm not getting on that. There are 10 commandments we ought to know and we ought to keep them. There are principles we ought to celebrate them. We, we, we ought not shun them. But friend, while you are following the commandments, you've got to know the commandment giver. While you know the principles, you've got to know the prince of peace. Absolutely important. The two are not, they, they should not be mutually exclusive. In fact, you can really only know one as you know the other. Tell me you know Jesus and you're careless in your Christian experience. You've got to re-examine the definitions. Uh, and you can flip that thing around and the opposite or the same is true when you look at the other side of the coin. Ladies and gentlemen, we must get serious, all of us, about having a genuine relationship with God. Don't start on the outside. Start on the inside. Feed your soul. Bless your experience. This sister began to read the Bible as though it was God speaking personally to her. She looked at promises and she said, I can claim them. I can believe them. She started spending serious time with God and really getting to know God. You know this already. I know I'm telling you what you already know. But faith in God takes time with God. Get to know God's word. Take time in service. You'll hear people talk about the 90-10 rule in churches. 10% of the members do 90% of the work. And then you get some say, well, it's more like 595. No. Can't everybody go from camp meeting back to church and say, pastor, or speak to somebody in the board. I just want to help. I want to do something. I want to pull my weight. It would be a brand new world. Take time serving God. Take time serving others. Give some time out of our lives so that we can do God's service. We've got to have our priorities right so we're not just on this earth accumulating stuff, waiting till we die in order to give. In fact, it's not giving in the same way if you do it after you die. You rob yourself of some joy while you're alive. We are not here on this earth just to eat, drink, and be merry, but to serve Jesus, to live in a way that we are connected with Jesus. Where's the connection? How's the connection? Examine for a moment the reality of your experience. I don't say that accuse, in an accusing fashion. 
I know that here we've got genuine saints of God. They're as tight as they possibly can be with the Almighty. But you know that doesn't go for all of us. And it should. There's no hierarchy in the church. We are all offered a genuine experience with Jesus, a real experience with Jesus. We are here to live in such a way that our life and the life of Jesus just sort of blend together here. The devil is constantly looking for ways to separate you from God, to lead you to a place where faith in God is not the most important thing in your life. Let me tell you how this works. Real simple, real simple. You probably heard about the treasure hunt that was got underway, I don't know how long ago, maybe 10 years ago. A fellow in the Midwest had a bit of money, his name was Forrest Fenn, started a treasure hunt, and if I remember correctly, it was in 2010. He claimed that he had hidden a million dollars or so worth of valuables somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. He wrote a book. In that book was a 24-line poem. And he said that the poem contained all the information necessary to find the treasure. People from all over the country got involved. I'd be surprised if there's not somebody here who, who, who went to the Midwest and looked for the treasure. There are people who live not too far from where I live. They would get out there to Colorado and places like that looking for the loot, looking for the treasure, trying to find the valuables. Some people dedicated their lives to finding Forrest Fenn's treasure. The person who found it was a Michigander, 32-year-old medical student. His name was Jack Stuff. So how was it that 32-year-old Jack found the treasure when there were thousands and thousands of people looking? Some people died looking for the treasure. How was this young guy able to find it? Now, ladies and gentlemen, you already know where I'm going. The Bible speaks about the person who gave his all so he could find the treasure. You know where the parallel is here. I don't even have to point this out. How was 32-year-old Jack Stuff of Michigan able to find the treasure? Listen to this. I'm quoting him now. He said, I've probably thought about it for at least a couple of hours a day, every day, since I learned about it. Every day. Now think about that. He was looking for a million dollars or so. He thought about it for two hours a day, every day. Now friend, I wouldn't mind if somebody dropped a million dollars worth of treasure in my lap. That'd be okay. But the fact of the matter is we are looking above that to a far more valuable treasure. He had a million dollars by thinking about it for a couple of hours a day. I'm challenging you now. Have you ever heard where, where, where somebody with great wisdom once wrote, it would do us a lot of good to take a thoughtful hour each day to think about the life of Christ and meditate on, meditate on it, particularly the closing scenes. Now, you can do it however you want, but this fellow was thinking about hidden treasure for a couple of hours a day. How much are you thinking about Jesus? Or is he just an afterthought? Is he just an appendage in your life? He said that to find the solution, listen to this, he would listen carefully to the things that Mr. Fenn had said in interviews, finding a few crucial clues. A writer said that the man made it seem so simple that the key in finding the treasure was really just understanding Forrest Fenn. 
The man hunted solo, never discussed his search with others, stayed away from blogs after he read them once. And he tried hard not to get caught up in any groupthink. Listen to this. I'm reading now from an article. He did his utmost just to focus on Mr. Fenn's words and primary sources and understand those as best as he could. Are you hearing me, church? Listen to some more. He said, I don't want to ruin this treasure hunt by saying it was made for an English major. Listen. But it's based on a close reading of the text. How about that? He said, I understood him by reading his words and listening to him talk over and over and over and over again and seeking out anything I could get my hands on that told me who he was. Finding the treasure was based on a close reading of the text and listening again and again and again and again to what the man said. Seems like he was the only guy who took that approach. Friend, that's the approach we gotta take if we're gonna get out of this world in one piece. Salvation is found in Jesus. Finding the million dollar treasure was important to this young man, so he listened and listened to the man himself not distracted by what others say, not caught up in groupthink. He just focused on the man and read the text and he found the treasure. And right there is the solution to preparing for the return of Jesus, to practice Christianity, to grow your faith, to get to know Jesus. I was just speaking with somebody yesterday. Four years undergrad, four years medical school, two-year residency, a year of fellowship, maybe something else in there. Eleven years to become a, a specialist physician. Eleven years. And people do it all the time without complaining. Why? Because it's worth it. You don't roll out of bed and become a physician. It takes some dedication and application. It's not wrong to say that being a Christian takes some dedication and it takes some application. I'm not talking about being saved by works. I'm talking about Christianity. If you would become an expert in something, you would read and read and read and read and read. How in the world can we be Christians while we neglect the Word of God? That doesn't make any sense at all. There are organizations that if you sign up as a volunteer and you don't do your time, they'll just give you the boot. And while I'm not advocating that our churches act that way, our church roles are bloated with the names of people we can't even remember. Folks who show up once in a while. Again, I'm not saying boot them out. I'm saying what a tragedy it is that so many people take something of such great value so flippantly, so lightly. There are people study to be astronauts, take them years. People study to be pilots. They work and they study and they study and they work. I spoke to a lady, was it today or was it yesterday? I don't recall, I should recall. And she's finished medical school, fantastic. Now she's got to do her boards. Oh, what's that looking like? Oh, that's hard. But she's gonna study and study and study. I believe she's gonna be successful. Nursing students in my neighborhood, they're done with their studies, they've been 
They've graduated and been, had degrees conferred on them, but they're not, not practicing nurses yet because they have to sit those external examinations. They've got to pass them, and then they get, we let them loose in a hospital. It takes some effort. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not, I've got to underscore this, suggesting that you're saved by your works, but friend of God, we've got to apply ourselves to Christianity. There are days we don't feel like praying. Pray. There are days we don't feel like we want to read our Bible. Read. There are days that we don't have time. Make time. Because whatever else you did, instead of having your daily devotional time with Jesus, it was not worth it. I remember some guys in the church I was passing. Yeah, yeah, pastor, we're having this meeting. We want to encourage each other. We get together. We go out to... What's the donut shop called? I don't know. It wasn't Duncan. It was the other one. We go there and we, we, we do what we do and we encourage each other. We hold ourselves accountable. I'm like, wow, this is happening in my church. Praise the Lord. This is awesome. So how are you guys doing? Man, yeah, great, man. I'm, I'm, I'm up to five minutes a day. I said, oh, it's great. And I left that meeting that they'd invited me to wondering whether they lived in a parallel universe. You're up to five minutes a day? I mean, where were you, where were you at last week? You've been in the church your whole life. You're up to five minutes a day. Now, I don't want to be so cynical, but these are long-time members. If you're up to five minutes a day, God bless you, but, but psh, let's raise it. How's medical school going? Great, man. How's the studies? Awesome. I'm up to five minutes a day. <laughs> I didn't think so either. I want to encourage you that you take a look at yourself. Look into your heart. Look into your experience. If you ever have a meaningful daily devotional experience, thank God for you. But I know there are people here that don't. I want to rag on you. I don't mean that. I want to motivate you, encourage you. I think the Spirit of God wants to speak to you and say, hey, you're robbing yourself of the most special moments that you could ever spend. You're robbing yourself. You're not hearing the voice of Jesus. You're not taking that time with God. You're not, you're not hearing from his heart. You're not going through the day and hearing God say, no, 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 turn left. You're missing all of that. And you're, and you're not getting ready for heaven. You hope that one day just poof, somehow you'll be ready for heaven doesn't happen that way. Happens now. Depends on a close reading of the text. Listening for the clues. Listening to the sound of his voice. And anyone can do it. Don't you love the fact that salvation is not dependent on your ability to climb Mount Everest? Are you glad about that? If. It's a big if. If. I show up tomorrow morning for that 5K. I'll be confessing freely to you how glad I am that my salvation is not dependent on my ability to run 5Ks. Aren't you glad that God makes it simple? He says, here's a book. Read this. I can't read. Listen. Have someone else read. That's doable. Take time to pray. Well, how do I pray? You just talk. That's all. You figure it out. 
God made it nice and easy. Share your faith. What? Tell somebody else. Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? When peanut butter is on sale, you tell your neighbor, oh, you got to go over here. You save 50 cents a jar. I thought gasoline was expensive in Tennessee. Then I came to Michigan. If you know of a gas station that's selling gas 20 cents lower than everybody else, you will do the decent thing. You get on the phone and tell the people you care about. You'll do it. It'd be terrible of you if you did not. And yet you know Jesus, the difference between life and death, and you let your neighbor go to hell? You know what that's going to be like, right? Even though Adventists don't have a Baptist hell, it's still a bad hell. It's, it's pretty serious. You wouldn't just let people walk in there unopposed. You wouldn't do that, would you? Wouldn't you get between them and hell and say, no, 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 I got to keep you out of here. I, I, I got to tell you. Or wouldn't you get between them and their misery, them and their emptiness, them and their incompleteness and say, hey, there's something that'll top up your life. It'll bless your life. You'll have fulfillment and satisfaction. You'll be glad. You'll live like you've never lived before. Wouldn't you want that for somebody? Sure you would. These are blessings, blessings. We want to get to know Jesus. I know there's a lot militating against genuine faith in Christ. I know that. The world has never been more attractive. There have never been more people encouraging you to sin, telling you to do you and speak your truth and live your life and forget the establishment. There's never been more support for people who want to live a godless life. You go back a few generations, and if you didn't want to follow Jesus, you wanted to do your own thing, you actually had to rebel. Now it's easy. Sin has never been so freely displayed or energetically promoted. It has never been this accessible. Society has never been so cynical. Fewer people than ever trust the news. They're finally catching on. Frankly, it's wise when now you would have to admit it don't even matter the news organization. They're not there to report the news. They are there to push an ideology. And we have learned in recent times it's very hard to trust anything you read. Sin is attractive. Yes, it's intoxicating. Sure, it's alluring. Yes, and you and I both are living with the accumulation of 6,000 years of the effect of sin building up in our DNA. We are weakened morally. What we need, though, is Jesus, and thank God he has promised to be our help. Thank God he's coming back soon. You want it to be the absolute best moment you could ever imagine, not the worst. You find the Bible boring, that's okay. Read more of it. It'll get interesting. You find Jesus boring, read more about him and less about the Kardashians. And suddenly, Jesus will become more attractive. You find faith uninteresting. Think more about it. Get more involved. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Search for God. Read his word. You will make a remarkable discovery. You will find there is a God who loved the world so much he gave his only begotten son. You will find that there is a God who didn't have to, but he emptied heaven's treasury so you could have eternal life. You will find that there is a God who came after you when you ran, who pursued you when you rebelled, when you turned your back on him. He loved you 
anyway because he wants you to be saved and not lost. In Amos, God speaks directly to Israel. Think about this. Let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. You know how sinful Israel was. And yet God said that, that was God saying, even as bad as you are, it's not over. I have a future for you. You cannot screw up so badly that God won't have your back. Man, that ought to encourage you. When you go to God to repent, don't ever say if. You start your prayer of repentance with the words, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you forgive me. Thank you that I can start again. Thank you that in spite of my corruption, it isn't all over. Thank you that Jesus died to set me free. You have never come to the place in your experience where it is too late for you. Let, what did God say? Amazing words. Let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. He was saying to Israel, as corrupt as you are, it's still possible. As bent as you are, the best is yet to come for you. This is not a God whose love runs out. This is a God who keeps on hanging in there with his people. Have you made a mistake recently? Don't say it out loud. I know you have. I also know that God loves you anyway. We're growing in our faith. God loves us. You stub your spiritual toe. God loves you. Before long, the wound is healed. You forget which toe you stubbed. God and grace are like that. We are not doubting God. The Bible says strive to enter into the straight gate and so we do knowing that Jesus holds the thing open wide for us. There was Jesus crowned with thorns, soaked in blood, hanging on a cross, dying for you. Every year we celebrate the Easter story. God allows us to do that because you don't want anybody to forget what love looks like. You look at that and you say, this is what God did for me. Even Israel, after God had read them the riot act, was able to say, God's not done. Listen, friend, God is still in the transformation business. Yes, he says, follow after me. But when we stumble, he waits and picks us up. When we take a detour, he goes after us and brings us back. When we fail dismally, even when we plot and plan and scheme, God appeals to us and says, there is a brighter day coming. There is a new tomorrow coming. Jesus is coming back and God wants us to be there. The cross says, God's love is beyond your ability to comprehend. You can't measure it. You may not even be able to understand it, but you can accept it and believe it and revel in it and celebrate it. Jesus crowned with thorns. Jesus hanging on a cross. Jesus assuming the curse as he was nailed to a tree. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Jesus dying a lonely, ignominious death. Our names engraved on the palms of his hands. Heaven giving everything for you, friend of God. If you will look to the cross and understand something about the enormity of the love of God, this will keep your faith real, your hope alive, your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's coming back. It must not be a rude awakening for Christians on that day. There mustn't. Why do I have to say this? Because apathy 
eats the life out of our experience. Distraction convinces us that other things are important. The devil blinds our eyes and numbs us, but it must not be. We may be living, breathing, spirit-filled Christians found in the service of God, going forward, conquering, and to conquer. Now, I will tell you, it can be a challenge being a church pastor. I got a phone call. I'll call him, I'll call him Jeremy. Jeremy's missing. Uh, no problem, Jeremy's just an energetic kid. They'll find Jeremy. No, 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 Jeremy went skiing with his dad and his dad's friend. And they cannot find him. I said, ah, Jeremy. Jeremy, 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 Jeremy. They'll find Jeremy. Sure, they'll find Jeremy. So he went skiing. What season of the year was it? Correct. Unless in Michigan. The next morning, I think what woke me was the phone. They hadn't found Jeremy. He'd spent all night out there. All night. This is not looking good now. We drove up to the location. There were searches, more and more people arriving, anguished people. No sign of Jeremy. We went home. Later in the day, we got the phone call. They found him. You know, even today, if you and I walked to the front gate of the cemetery where he rests, I could walk you straight to his grave. Some things you just don't forget. I I could probably walk you from the gate to his grave blindfolded. Here's the gate. There it is over there. Just over here, there's a big tree. Here's what hurts so much. I'm talking about the death of a 12-year-old boy, and now I'm about to say, here's what hurts so much. What was interesting is when they found Jeremy, he, he was over on his side like he'd fallen asleep, which I guess he had. He'd had to wait. He got off the track, and a ski broke, and he waded through snow that was waist-deep or chest-deep. He was wearing... He was wearing denim jeans and didn't have a hope. The positive is that hypothermia, they say, is, is not the worst way to go. He had one of these, what do you call these things, these bags you buckle around your waist? Fanny pack? Yeah. He had a fanny pack on. There are a couple of things in that fanny pack. One of them was a whistle. A whistle. What do you think might have happened if he'd opened it, taken out the whistle, and blown the whistle? What do you think might have happened? The mountainside was crawling with people. Someone would have heard him. He'd have been found. He'd be in his mid-twenties almost, maybe married. He'd have graduated from college. 
The one saving thing, the one saving thing about it is that he was baptized, thank God, about a month or so before this terrible thing happened. So there's a little part of me that says, thank God he died safe in the arms of Jesus. But there he was, his life slipping away. And he possessed on his person the very mechanism that would have assured his salvation, his saving, his rescue. And here we are. Every day there are people dying and going into Christless graves. They have a Bible on their shelf. If I can invite you to be judgmental with me for a moment, my assumption is that you would not claim that 100% of the people where you go to church would be saved were they to die tonight. You would say, honestly, pastor, i got my doubts about some. We're not talking about you yet. That's a horse of a different color. But the fact of the matter is, we, ha we have the whistle in our pocket. Just blow the thing. Just pray. Just read. Just believe. The bad news about the second coming is that not everybody will be saved at the second coming. It's tragic. I mean, what was, what was the cross for? Didn't I hear someone say that Jesus died to save us from our sins? He's done everything that could be done to assure our salvation. And now he invites us to believe. Friend, can you make the decision tonight to believe? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the jailkeeper was told, and you will be saved and your house or your household. Can you believe tonight? I don't know, I don't know what the, the measure of your belief is. It's just as well that there's not some gauge on the wall that measures our collective belief and charts us on a graph somewhere between lost and saved. We might be stunned were we to see what the graph revealed. Can you believe? Can you have faith? Let me ask you a series of questions. Did God create the earth, yes or no? Did he speak and it was done, yes or no? Did Jesus walk on water? Was he born of a virgin? Did he change water into wine? And on and on and on. So you see, you can do this. You can believe. Just believe. Are the promises true, yes or no? How many of them? All of them. Do they apply to you, yes or no? Do they apply to the person beside you or in front of you, behind you? Yes, they do. We can do this. We can believe the whistle's in our pocket. No need for us to curl up in a ball and fall asleep and sleep the sleep of death. Life is offered. The second coming of Jesus, can you imagine? You know, have, you, have you thought it through recently? You're going to look up towards the heavens. They will depart as a scroll, like they're being rolled up. You will actually see a being riding down the great corridors of space. You've got me stuff going on in the heavens that Spielberg couldn't even imagine. Gravity. <laughs> you know, recently, the Star Trek guys, 90 or so years of age, got in a, a, a spaceship thing, went up to heaven and experienced weightlessness 
for a few moments. It was much ado about almost nothing. Soon we are going to go up, no money necessary. We're going to experience weightlessness for I don't know how long. It's going to add up to salvation. Have you thought this through? Have you ever wondered what it's going to be like? The earth getting smaller beneath you. We travel on through the clouds, through the starry heavens. We go to God's house. Have you thought, I'll see you by the tree of life. You're not going to find me there. Everybody meeting everybody by the tree of life. Tell me you're going to meet me somewhere else. But have you ever wondered what the fruit is going to be like? Kiwi fruit is going to be growing on the tree of life. And durian will be growing on the tree of life. And Washington apples will be growing on the, sorry, I didn't mean that. Michigan apples will be growing on the tree of life. Have you thought about that? We can do this. The second coming is going to be the best news ever. We can believe because God will give us belief. We can exercise faith because faith is a gift given by God. We can lift up our heads and look up. And rejoice because our redemption draws nigh. No, no, no. We can't conquer sin. Jesus does that in us. We cannot deserve eternity. That's Jesus. We trust in him. But you can place your hand in the hand of Jesus and your heart in the hands of faith. You can do that now. Simple, simple. Jesus is coming back soon. I might have said, we must be ready. Instead, I'm going to say, we may be ready. Let me ask you a question. It's yes or no. Do you believe? Then it's settled. We are ready. When Jesus comes back, we're going home to heaven and we'll be with him forever. Can you say amen? Come on, we're going to pray together. Let's pray like we mean it. Our Father in heaven. Oh, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. This old earth is waxing old like a garment. But soon its shaky kingdoms are going to be swept away. We see trouble and turmoil at every hand. Uh, give us grace, Lord, not to, be, not to be angry, not to be the problem, but to celebrate the solution and look in faith to Jesus. Keep us, O oh God. The second coming, how can we miss it? How can we not be there? So cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts and ignite us again, and fill us with faith in Jesus. We choose to believe tonight. We're looking forward to that great day. We don't know when it will be, other than soon. Yet we say with John, who wrote the book of Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. This is our prayer. We pray it in faith, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Please say with me tonight, amen and amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.